Um, Genesis chapter 32, verse 1, um, down to 33, verse 17. And, and once again, it's, it's a bit of a long passage, so uh, if you're not able to stand, um, you can stand in your heart. Okay, um, Genesis 32, 1. Jacob went on his way, and the angels of God met him. When Jacob saw them, he said, This is God's camp. So he called the name of that place Mahanaim. And Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau, his brother, in the land of Seir, the country of Edom, instructing them, Thus you shall say to my lord Esau, Thus says your servant Jacob, I have sojourned with Laban and stayed until now. I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, male servants, and female servants. I have sent to tell my Lord in order that I may find favor in your sight. The messengers returned to Jacob saying, We came to your brother Esau and he is coming to meet you and there are 400 men with him. Then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. He divided the people who were with him and the flocks and the herds and the camels into two camps, thinking, if Esau comes to the one camp and attacks it, then the camp that is left will escape. And Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O Lord, who said to me, return to your country and to your kindred that it may do you good. I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. For with only my staff I have crossed this Jordan, and now I have become two camps. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him that he may come and attack me, the mothers with the children. But you said, I will surely do you good, and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. So he stayed there that night, and... and from what he had with him, he took a present for his brother Esau, 200 female goats and 20 male goats, 200 ewes and 20 rams, 30 milking camels and their calves, 40 cows and 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys and 10 male donkeys. These he handed over to his servants, every drove by itself, and said to his servants, pass on ahead of me and put a space between drove and drove. He instructed the first, when, when Esau, my brother, meets you and asks you, to whom do you belong, where are you going, and whose are these ahead of you, then you shall say, they belong to your servant Jacob. They are a present sent to my lord Esau, and moreover, he is behind us. He likewise instructed the second and the third and all who followed the droves. You, says, you shall say the same thing to Esau when you find him. You shall say, Moreover, your servant Jacob is behind us, for he thought I may appease him with the present that goes ahead of me, and afterward I shall see his face. Perhaps he will accept me. So the present passed on ahead of him, and he himself stayed that night in the camp. The same night he arose and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his eleven children, and crossed the ford of the Jabbok, he took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had. And Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket. And Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, let me go for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. 
And he said to him, What is your name? He said, Jacob. Then he said, Your name shall no longer be called Jacob, for, for, but Israel, for you have, stricken, have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, Please tell me your name. But he said, Why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, For I have seen God face to face, yet my life has been delivered. The sun rose upon him as he passed Peniel, limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that is on the hip socket, because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip and the sinew of the thigh. Jacob lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, Esau was coming and 400 men with him. So he divided the children among Leah and Rachel and the two female servants, and he put the servants with their children in front. Then Leah and her children, then Rachel and Joseph, last of all, he himself went on before them, bowing himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. But Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him, and they wept. And when Esau lifted up his eyes and saw the women and the children, he said, Who are these with you? Jacob said, The children whom God has graciously given your servant. Then his children drew near, so then the servants drew near, they and their children, and bowed down. Leah likewise and her children drew near and bowed down. And last, Joseph and Rachel drew near, and they bowed down. Esau said, What do you mean by all this company that I met? And Jacob answered, To find favor in the sight of my Lord. But Esau said, I have enough, brother. Keep what you have for yourself. And Jacob said, No, please, if I have found favor in your sight, then accept my present from my hand. For I have seen your face, which is like, the see, like seeing the face of God, and you have accepted me. Please accept my blessing that is brought to you, because God has dealt graciously with me, and because I have enough. Thus he urged him, and he took it. Then Esau said, Let us journey on our way, and I will go ahead of you. But Jacob said to him, My Lord knows that the children are frail and that the nursing flocks and herds are a care to me. If they are driven hard for one day, all the flocks will die. Let my Lord pass on ahead of his servant and I will lead on slowly at the pace of the, of the livestock that are ahead of me and at the pace of the children until I come to my Lord in Seir. So Esau said, Let me leave with you some of the people who are here with me. But he said, What need is there? Let me find favor in the sight of my Lord. So Esau returned that day on his way to Seir. But Jacob journeyed to Succoth and built himself a house and made booths for his livestock. Therefore, the name of the place is called Succoth. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let's pray again together. Our Lord and our God, as we approach this passage of Scripture, once again we see your character revealed. Lord, we see your character in the way that you respond to Jacob. Lord, we see the way that Jacob is transformed through that encounter with you. And I pray, Lord, that as we consider this passage this morning and its application and implications for our own lives, 
We pray that you, you would help us to see how we have been transformed through our encounter with you and how you are continuing to transform us, to sanctify us in the work of your Holy Spirit through the circumstances of our lives. Lord, we pray that this would all be for your glory and for the building of your church. Amen. I used to think that I was a pretty good guy. But in the days leading up to my conversion, I began to realize that I wasn't such a good person after all. I began to realize that there wasn't one person in my life that I hadn't harmed. Now, I didn't go out of my way to hurt people, but I had hurt people, many people, because of my selfishness. And I began to face heavy conviction. And it felt like a, a dreadful parade of my sins was being walked past my mind. And that parade just kept coming and coming and coming. And as God began to work in my heart, I started to confess ways that I'd sinned. And, and I started with my parents. They probably faced the brunt of, of, of my sin. And I confessed to my parents the things that, that, that I had done against them, but it, it didn't take very long before they told me to stop. They said, John, we forgive you. We don't want to hear anymore. But my parents were only the beginning. There was a lot more work to do. The first time that I heard the gospel, no one had to convince me that I was a sinner. No one had to convince me that I needed a savior. No one needed to convince me that I needed to turn away from my sin and put my faith in Christ. I simply prayed, Lord, whatever is left of this wreck of a life is yours. Just please forgive me. And he did. In that moment, I was born again. My sins were imputed to Christ and Christ's righteousness was imputed to me. I was saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. So there was and is a lot more work to do. I began, or more accurately, the Lord began to untangle the tangled mess of my life. Not only were there attitudes and patterns of behavior that needed to be radically changed, but there was still that list of people that I had harmed. And occasionally to this day, something, a past sin that I've committed against somebody will come to mind. A person that I, I need to seek forgiveness from or, or something that I need to seek to make right. When you first have an encounter with God, when you first come to saving faith, yes, it is the most important step and the only step that determines your salvation. But it's only the first step. When you come to faith in Christ, the rest of your life will be lived under the sanctifying hand of God, chipping away at you, shaping and molding you into the image of Christ. Unlike your salvation, which is monergistic, God does it all, your sanctification is synergistic. God works and you work for your sanctification. God works and you work. You work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to work according to his good pleasure. Philippians 2, 12 and 13. It's true in your life and it's true in the passage that we'll see this morning in the life of Jacob. 
Yes, Jacob had taken that first step of faith. In Genesis 28, at at Bethel, when the Lord revealed to him the stairway to heaven and promised to bless him with property, with progeny, with provision and protection, and with his presence. And Jacob responded by declaring that the Lord would be his God. Bethel was Jacob's stairway to heaven. However, there was many more steps for Jacob to take. His steps led him to Haran, to Laban, his uncle and soon-to-be father-in-law, who deceived him by substituting Jacob's beloved, the younger Rachel, for the older sister, Leah. It was painful, but a fitting discipline for Jacob, who had deceived his own father, Isaac, by substituting himself for his older brother, Esau, in order to steal the blessing. Laban used Jacob for 20 years of hard labor. Yes, the Lord blessed Jacob during that time. He blessed him with 11 children, with great wealth and flocks and herds and servants and camels and donkeys. But even even in that, Jacob was still seeking to out-scheme Laban. It, It was a time of much hardship. Jacob's life was being sanctified through trials, through very difficult trials. Then finally, as we saw last week, Jacob finally left Haran to go back to the promised land at the command of the Lord. And Laban chased after him. And who knows what would have happened had not the Lord intervened and warned Laban in a dream, saying, do not harm Jacob, don't even say anything good or bad to him. The Lord protected Jacob from Laban. Jacob did get out of that one unscathed, but the work wasn't finished. There was more work for the Lord to do. And that takes us to Genesis 32, with Jacob on the doorstep of the promised land, with more work for the Lord to do to untangle Jacob's life. Yes, Jacob is finally free from his father-in-law Laban. But before Jacob could enter the promised land, he had to take a detour. He had to make things right with his brother Esau. Esau was in Seir, nowhere near the direction that he was headed. But he had to go there first. He had to go backwards in order to go forwards. Facing the sin of your past is a necessary element of the repentance that leads to life that Paul speaks of in 2 Corinthians 7 verse 11. Derek Kidner explains, In Jacob's pilgrimage, the way to the heights now led through a valley of humiliation, which he made no attempt to skirt. Esau was far more dangerous than Laban. Remember, Esau had plotted to kill Jacob. Jacob is about to fear for his life. He's he's understandably scared. And all of this is calculated to bring Jacob to an end of himself, to help him put his confidence in the Lord, to be all in. Before he encounters Esau, he's going to have another encounter. He's going to come away from this encounter forever changed. There are three main scenes in this passage before us. In chapter 32, verses 1 to 21, Jacob fears Esau. In chapter 32, verses 22 to 32, Jacob wrestles with God. And then in chapter 33, verses 1 to 20, Jacob meets Esau. 
Through Jacob's life, we've seen him striving with men, relying on himself, on his plans, his schemes, in order to get the blessing. Well, this morning, again, we're going to see how God brings Jacob to an end of himself so that he'll strive with God for the blessing. So chapter 32, verses 1 to 21, Jacob fears Esau. As chapter 32 begins, Jacob is on his way from his meeting with Laban. And again, he is, Jacob is met by angels of God. Here in chapter 28, the, the, the incident with the stairway to heaven at Bethel are the only times in the Holy Old Testament that refer to the angels of God. That this called Jacob's mind and is meant to call ours back to the stairway to heaven at Bethel when the Lord had promised to bless Jacob. And so Jacob declares, as he said before, this is God's house. Now he says, this is God's camp. So he called the name of that place Mahanaim, which means two camps. Now notice the angels were there as he had left the promised land for Haran, and the angels are there as he left Haran back for the promised land. The implication is, is that they were with him the whole time. The angels had never departed from Jacob. He was, they were there with him as they're there with us the whole time as, as ministers of God, as, as messengers of God for us in our lives. As Kenneth Matthew says, Jacob was outside of the land of promise, but he was not outside of the hand of promise. This vision of angels is meant to prepare Jacob for what's coming next. Verse 3, Esau we haven't heard that name in, in a long time. It's been, been 20 years since Jacob has seen Esau. But you can be sure that that name Esau was regularly on Jacob's mind, but with varying emotions. Sometimes it would have been guilt over what he'd done. Other times it would have been pining for his family. But, but I believe the primary motivation, the primary emotion that he was experiencing was fear. Again, Laban was scary. Esau is scarier. The reason why Jacob had left the promised land because was because Esau was going to kill him for stealing the blessing. And now Jacob is seeking Esau out. Something's changed in Jacob. Jacob sends messengers to Esau in the land of Seir to the country of Edom. This is, this is a mark of repentance. And, and he, in this incident, he, he gives the servants very specific instructions. Thus you shall say to my Lord Esau, thus says your servant Jacob, I have sojourned with Laban and stayed until now. I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, male servants, and female servants. I have sent to tell my Lord in order that I might, may find favor in your sight. Notice the deference that Jacob shows. My Lord Esau, your servant Jacob. When the messengers returned, the news wasn't good. Esau is coming with 400 men. It's a small army. Jacob is terrified. He's distraught. And he's not finished with his scheming. And so he divides his possessions into two camps. He figures, well, if one is destroyed, at least the other one will be left. But that's not all he did. Look at verses 9 to 12. Jacob prayed. He prayed. Jacob has been changed by his earlier encounter with the Lord. This is, this is the longest prayer that's recorded in, in Genesis, it's a, and it's one of the exemplary prayers of the Bible. Notice first in verse 9. 
That, that it's grounded in the covenant relationship that Jacob has with the Lord. O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac. Notice that it's grounded in God's command to him. O Lord who said to me, return to your country and to your kindred. It's grounded on God's character, on God's promise to do him good. Notice the humility, the worship and the thanksgiving in verse 10. I'm not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. For with only my staff I have crossed the Jordan. I have now become two camps. Jacob's saying, I had, I had nothing in my hand but my staff when I left the promised land. And, and now look how much you've blessed me while I was gone. You've blessed me with, with family. You've, you've blessed me with great wealth. And I don't deserve any of it. And then finally in verse 11, he gets to the petition, to the request. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him that he may come back and attack me. The mothers and with the children. He's, he's asking for, for protection for himself and for his family. But then notice in verse 12, he comes back again to God's promise. He says to the Lord, But you said, I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. This parallels, I believe, the, 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 what Isaac said, or what, rather what Abraham said when he went with Isaac to, to sacrifice him, he said, I and the boy will go over and I and the boy will return. He has faith that, that, that God has promised that he's going to protect his family. That this prayer is, is exemplary. It's, it's paradigmatic. It's, it's another model prayer. These are things that, that we can and ought to include in, in our own prayers. Our prayer should include these ingredients. Consciously grounded on the new covenant in Christ's blood. Consciously grounded in the commands and promises of God's word, full of humility and, and worship and thanksgiving. And then we make our requests. But this isn't just a mere formula. This is the prayer of a, of a worshipful heart. Jacob has changed. This is reflected in, in his prayer, and it, and it will be reflected in ours as well. So Jacob is here acknowledging his reliance upon the Lord. But Jacob isn't finished with his scheming yet. Look what happens next. In, in, the, in these next verses, in, in verses um, 13 to, um, sorry, th in 13 to, to 21, we, we see that, that he is, that he's, he's now got a plan. He's got a, a, an idea of how he can placate his brother. Now, I don't believe this is another attempt to deceive. The scripture has been very clear when he's been deceptive. Th this is a gift He's trying to, to appease Esau's anger. It's a generous gift. 550 animals. But notice the way that Jacob carefully calculates. He sends them out in three groups with very clear instructions to each of the lead servants concerning what Esau might say and what they should say to respond to him. They belong to your servant Jacob. They're a present sent to my lord Esau. And moreover, he is behind us. Each servant was to say the same thing. And he thought, verse 20, that I may appease him with the present that goes ahead of me, and afterward I shall see his face. Perhaps he will accept me. But I want you to notice something here. Notice that Jacob has sent each one of them away ahead of him, with he himself at the rear. He's got a buffer 
between him between himself and his brother Esau. He's alone there in the camp and Hamilton points out that Jacob hardly emerges in this event as the epitome of bravery. He's always in the rear, something or someone behind him. Jacob will do everything except face up to Esau at this point. The English doesn't pick up on this word, but the word face figures prominently. It's it's used five times in verses uh, 20 and 21. Uh, Appease him in Hebrew is that I may cover his face. And then the present that goes ahead of me is gifts that go ahead of my face. And then verse 3, I shall see his face. And then in 4, he will accept me in, in Hebrew as he will raise my face. And, and then the present that passed on ahead of me is the present, present that went on ahead of my face. There's a very intentional repetition there. It's meant to be telling us something. It, it's preparing us for what is going to happen next. That this face-to-face encounter that is going to radically transform Jacob and then and subsequently prepare him for the face-to-face encounter that he's going to have with his brother. Jacob is showing that even though the Lord is his God, even though he is walking with God, there's still work to be done in Jacob's heart. Like us, Jacob is revealing the desires of the flesh that are at war with the desires of the Spirit. Galatians 5.17 Sinclair Ferguson explains that God has not deserted him. God is still going to be his God. But the Lord is not simply content with with a Jacob who has begun on the conversion road, but he wants to untwist this twister. In in order to be untwisted, there there will need to be be a series of reverse twists in his life. There is some serious untwisting that is about to take place in Jacob's life. Brothers and sisters, praise the Lord that you have come to saving faith. Praise the Lord that you have been regenerated, that you have been justified. But God isn't going to leave you there. God isn't going to leave you to struggle with the sins that you were struggling with when you first came to faith. God isn't going to leave you in the sins that you are struggling with now. Romans 8.29 For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Take heart. You weren't, just, you weren't just predestined for salvation. You were also predestined for sanctification. God's providence in your life is meant to bring you to an end of your self-reliance to bring you to an end of yourself so that you're able to experience God's blessing. Now in verses 32 to to 32, Jacob wrestles with God. Verse 22. That same night, Jacob took his, his family and his possessions over the Jabbok River and he was left all alone. Now the Jabbok River throws, flows through Gilead into the Jordan just north of the Dead Sea. Jacob is here on the verge of entering Canaan, the promised land. And in the dark of night, he's all alone. That is until he has a mysterious encounter. A man, we're told, wrestled with him until the breaking of day. This word wrestled here is a play on words with the name of the river Jabbok, and it highlights Jacob's name. Jabbok and Jacob, very very similar, and it's a play on the word wrestled. 
Now, initially, we don't know the, the identity of this man, but as the day dawns, we're going to realize who is before Jacob, who his opponent is. Now, this is often considered to be one of the most cryptic passages in Genesis. But it becomes clear that this is God himself, that this is the pre-incarnate Christ. Jacob had thought that he was beyond his weight class with his brother. Jacob wrestled with Esau in the womb, and he's terrified of another bout with him now. But this wrestling match is infinitely more dangerous than anything he's experienced before. His brother could kill the body, but the one with whom he wrestled could now destroy both soul and body in hell. Now, both of these individuals show remarkable endurance. Now, we know where it comes from on the one side. But we also need to remember that, that Jacob has already shown supernatural strength, hasn't he? When he, when he supernaturally re removed that stone from the, from the well when he met Rachel, he was, was showing supernatural strength. Now, Jacob was strong, but the one before him was omnipotent. When I wrestle with the boys, I, I I restrain myself so as not to hurt them. I, I want to win the, the match, but I don't want to hurt them. I hope they'll do the same, have the same caution for me in a few years' time. But the imbalance in power here is infinite. It's infinite. Again, Jacob had wrestled with Esau in the womb. He had wrestled the blessing out of his father's hands, and now he's wrestling with God for the blessing. The man saw that he was not prevailing over Jacob, so he touched Jacob's hip, dislocating it and instantly crippling him. Yet Jacob still wouldn't let go. He hung on for dear life, and the man said to him, Let me go, for the day has broken. The, the, the morning light had already once before revealed a shocking identity to Jacob, when in the morning, behold, it was Leah. But here the man is having mercy. Because in the morning, behold, it was Yahweh, would be much too much. Yet Jacob's tenacious. I will not let you go unless you bless me. The man's identity is beginning to dawn on Jacob. Again, he has deceived his father to get the blessing. He's, he's robbed his brother to get the blessing. He's wrangled with Laban to get a blessing. Now he knows from whence the blessing must truly come. He's seeking the blessing that only the Lord can give. Jacob already has a new nature that was given to him at Bethel, but this is a major step forward in his victory over his old nature. As the superior, the man asks Jacob his name. Now remember, he, he was, this is God. This, he's omniscient. He already knows Jacob's name. He's not seeking to inform himself, but to inform Jacob. Verse 28 your name shall be no longer called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. This is the central verse of the whole passage. Jacob is striven with men, with his brother, with his father, with his uncle and father-in-law, and he is one. And he's striven with God, and he's one as well. 
Edward Curtis explains that the, the fulfillment of the promise must be the work of God rather than the work of Jacob. God struggles with Jacob, and in the process, Jacob prevails, not in the sense that he overcomes God, but rather in the sense that by recognizing his dependence on God, he is now able to receive the promise and the blessing of God to Abraham. And the process, the ignominy, the, the shame of Jacob's name as, as a deceiver, as a, as a heel grabber is gone. He's now Israel. He has a new name, which also represents a further change in his moral character. He, he's now somebody who no longer relies on himself, but now wrestles and strives with God. Kidner describes what has taken place that God would have all of Jacob's will to win, to attain and obtain, yet purged of self-sufficiency and redirected to the proper object of man's love, to God himself. The story of Jacob becoming Israel is a living parable for the nation of Israel who will continue to struggle with God to obtain the blessing. And like this, this Jacob become Israel, the nation of Israel's victory will not come through scheming or power, but by the blessing of the Lord. And as Sidney Grudanis explains, Israel would be reminded that it isn't, it isn't those who are self-sufficient, but those who strive with God for his blessing who can enter the promised land. This is a lesson for us as well. The only way that, that we can enter the promised land is by striving with God. By striving with God. Jacob called the name of the place Peniel or Penuel for, for saying, For I have seen God face to face, yet my life has been delivered. This, this word Peniel or Penuel means face of God. Jacob has been spared only by God's grace. And again, it's pointing forward to this face-to-face -face encounter that he's about to have with Esau. The sun rose upon him as he passed Penuel, limping because of his hip, verse 31. This limp would be a reminder to him for the rest of his life of his, of his encounter with the Lord. It would also be a reminder for the nation of Israel as, as they refrain from eating the sinew of the, of the thigh on the hip socket as a memorial of that event. I wonder, have you had an encounter with the Lord and come away limping? As I think about some of the trials that the Lord's providence has brought into my life, throughout my life as a Christian, but, but perhaps especially in, in recent years, I'm conscious of the fact that God has changed me through those trials. Now, I'm not saying that all of my self-reliance is gone but I know that I've come away forever changed. I'm sure you can relate that the, the way that the, the trials of your life has caused you to, to press into God, to lean on Him, to grow in fellowship with Him. This is exactly what those trials are designed to do. God is shaping you. He's molding you. He's humbling you. He's making you more like His Son. Those who, who believe the prosperity gospel have got it completely backwards. That often it's, it's trials that are the, the sign of God's favor in the life of the believer. And we draw comfort in the fact that, that, that He is our Heavenly Father and that He's disciplining us as those 
that he loves, that we are indeed legitimate children, that we are indeed his adopted children through the death of his son, our Savior. Anyone who has wrestled with God and come out of it alive knows he doesn't need to fear man. In chapter 33, verses 1 to 20, Jacob meets Esau. As chapter 33 begins, Jacob lifts his eyes and sees Esau and his 400 men approaching. Remember that, that interval, that, that intervening wrestling match he's had with the Lord hasn't changed the, the external circumstances of, of what's happening. He still has that threat of, of Esau and what, what Jacob assumes is an army approaching. And he divides his company into three groups. He's been doing some of this before. The, the, the children and, and, there's, and there's the servants and their children in front. And then Leah and her children. And then finally, Rachel and Joseph seeking to protect them above all. And Joseph is the only child who's named. This anticipates the sibling rivalry that is yet to come. The Lord is not yet finished with Jacob. There is more untwisting yet to do. And that will continue all the way to the end of Genesis. But notice something very interesting here in, in verse 3. Remember earlier when Jacob had, had sent out the groups, he had sent them out in front of him. But now he takes the lead. Now he is going out in front and he goes before the, his, the, this group and bows seven times, humbling himself as he approached Esau. Now Jacob still doesn't know what Esau is going to do here. But Esau runs to meet him. He runs to meet him. Now with, with Jacob's limp, his running days are over. But Esau embraces Jacob and falls on his neck and they, and they weep. This is a beautiful reunion that's reminiscent of the return of the prodigal son. As the father saw him coming and, and ran to meet him and embraced him and kissed him. We know that Jacob's heart has been changed. But how do we account for what's transformed Esau? The only explanation is the grace of God. Now Esau's not been regenerated. But that's not stopped the Lord from working in his heart to bless Jacob. This is a remarkable and poignant reunion. Esau asks about Jacob's family. Each, bow, each of the wives and children bow in turn as they approach Esau. First the servant women and their children, then Leah and her children, then finally, finally Rachel and Joseph. Esau then asks Jacob about the animals that he'd sent. And Jacob responds, but the reason is, is to find favor in the sight of my Lord. And Esau refuses. He says, no, I, I have enough. Now this might be a, a customary show of polite refusal, but nonetheless, Esau's spirit is conciliatory. He wants peace with Jacob. But Jacob's reply in verses 10 and 11 is, is interesting and telling. He says, no, please, if I have found favor in your sight, then accept my present from my hand. For I have seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God, and you have accepted me. Please accept my blessing that is brought to you because God has dealt graciously with me and because I have enough. Jacob is appealing to his brother on the basis of the fact that he has been accepted by God. 
Jacob has seen God face to face and lived. And now he has seen Esau face to face and lived. But notice the shift in, in words here from, verse, from uh, verse 10 to verse 11. It's gone from, from present to blessing. Where have we heard that word blessing before? When Jacob stole the blessing from Esau, and now he is seeking to give a blessing to Esau. This is restoration. And it's a part of repentance. If you have stolen something or damaged something that belongs to someone else, where possible, you need to replace it or pay for it. And this is, this is what we see happening here. This is, this is Jacob making restoration. And then Esau offers to accompany Jacob to his home in Seir. He's saying, come and live with me in my country of Seir. There is a new bond of peace between these brothers. And Jacob politely resists the offer, saying that the children and the animals couldn't make the trip. He says he will follow slowly behind to Seir. And so Esau makes another offer, this time of, of men to, to guard them or to, to guide them along the way. But again, Jacob politely declines the offer. And the brothers depart on friendly terms. But Jacob never makes it to Seir. He, he makes it to, to Succoth, a, a temporary residence, and he, he puts up puts up a temporary um, shelter for his animals. Now, this doesn't seem to be a deception on Jacob's part. He'd been commanded by the Lord to go home. In chapter 36, we're going to learn that that Esau suggested the brothers not dwell together because of the size of their flocks and herds. But the two brothers parted as brothers, no longer enemies. And so as as we close... As we think about the impact that an encounter with the Lord, a further encounter with the Lord had happened, or what it had done to Jacob, the, the, the change that God was continuing to make in, in Jacob's life and will continue to make in Jacob's life for the rest of Jacob's life. We think about the work that God has done and is doing and will do in our own lives. That... that He's not finished changing you. In His grace and through the power of His Holy Spirit, He's going to continue to change you. And yes, you, you, you strive in that, in the strength that He provides to, to seek to, to grow and to reflect Christ and, and more and more and, and to deal with, with sin as, as you become aware of it. Only God can change Jacob into an Israel. Only God can can change you so that you grow in the likeness of Christ. Sinclair Ferguson talks about a, about a, a child, an encounter with their father, and the the child is is got something in his hand, and the father says, "I want what's in your hand." And the child says, no, I don't want to let it go. But the father says, my child, I cannot bless you with what is in my hand unless you release what is in your hand. And so finally, the child reluctantly opens his hand and gives to his father his prized possession. And then the father takes the child's hand in his own hand and leads the child 
in an ever more intimate relationship. Friends, this is what God does with us. Whatever it is that, that is in our hands, whatever it is that, that we're holding on to that's, that's keeping us from experiencing God's blessing, God wants to take us in His hands. God wants, to, wants you to experience the full blessing of what He has for you in Christ. He wants you to say with the hymn writer, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Again, what, what is it that you are holding on to that is keeping you from embracing Christ with both hands? What is preventing you from experiencing His full blessing in your life? Don't make God have to wrestle you to the ground to pry it out of your hands. We thank God that we have a Savior who once had nothing in his hand except the nails that held him to that cross. It's because of Christ's life. It's because of Christ's death. It's because of Christ's resurrection and ascension that you can go to God as your heavenly Father and experience in this life the blessing that he has for you in Christ as you await that coming day when you will look and see Christ face to face, and then you will know for certain that everything that you treasured in this life apart from Christ was worthless compared to your relationship with Christ. Let go of your self-reliance. Let go of your works. Let go of, of your schemes and your pride and whatever it is that is keeping you from grabbing hold of Christ with both hands. Embrace Him and experience the blessing that He has for you. Let's pray together. Dear Lord, we praise you for this encouragement that we have. As we walk through the pages of Genesis and as we see this transformation that you are bringing in the life of Jacob, Lord, we take heart that you are the same God who is making a transformation in our lives. Yes, the biggest, the biggest change in us was when you caused us to be born again, to turn from our sins and put our faith in Christ. Yet, Lord, you are continuing your sovereign power to change us and to mold us and to make us like your Son. Lord, so we pray that, that you would help us, Lord, to be your eager participants in this work of, your eager partners in this work of sanctification. Lord, that we will go forward from here emboldened, encouraged, and fighting all the more to lay hold of every blessing that you have for us in Christ. We ask it in his precious name. Amen.